This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Looking this morning at verses 53 through 58. Matthew 13, 53 through 58. Hear the word of God. And when Jesus had finished these parables... He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that when they were so that they were astonished, and said, "Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us?" Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word, which is truth itself, your word, which um, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, we pray that the blade of your word would perform its surgery on our hearts, expose our hearts to us as our hearts are exposed to you, that by your grace, Father, we would see you as you are, see ourselves as we are, and by your grace become more what you would have us to be. Feed us from your word, instruct us, convict us. Build us up as your body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, are known as the prologue to John's Gospel, and perhaps a more theologically packed passage of Scripture you're not going to find anywhere else, except maybe in some parts of the book of Romans. But there in those first 18 verses of John's gospel, he touches on many important Christian doctrines regarding the person and work of Jesus. He talks about the Trinity, uh, touches on that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the deity of Christ, his preexistence. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, The doctrine of creation in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The uh, doctrine of the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But also included in this first chapter of John's gospel is teaching about his rejection. We see this in verse 9 where John writes, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
You see, part of the pain of Jesus' humiliation, which includes his incarnation, his becoming human, his living here among us, uh, ultimately going to the cross. But part of the pain of that, that state of humiliation uh, was bound up in the rejection that he experienced in John's word uh, at the hands of his own. He came to his own, the Greek could be interpreted to that which was his own, and his own people, the word people there is supplied, but it fits the grammar of the Greek there, uh, his own people did not receive him, they being, of course, the Jews. And uh, part of Jesus, uh, the pain of Jesus' rejection consisted in being rejected by the Jews, those in whom God's grace had been working for so long throughout the Old Testament. But among the Jews, I'm confident that Jesus felt the pain of that rejection nowhere more sharply than when it came from his own people, not just the Jews broadly, but his own, his own family, as we've already seen, his own hometown, the town of Nazareth. These, after all, were people that Jesus knew, people who, who knew him, people who had seen him grow up. They included people who perhaps were his babysitters when he was little, uh, people who were his uh, Saturday school teachers. They were, after all, Jewish Uh, Those people who knew his family, who were family friends, maybe had come over and spent many an evening with them. And yet it was among these people who knew him well that we read of Jesus' rejection here. And we read of this incident of his speaking in Nazareth, his hometown there in the synagogue and the rejection he experienced. It's worth asking the question, is this the same account that we read about in Luke 4? You know, where Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And remember, he then spoke to them about how uh, there were many widows in Israel, but Elisha went to none of them but to the widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon, this this Gentile, and how uh, there were many lepers in Israel, but the Lord... uh, sent Elisha to Naaman, the Syrian. And, uh, of course, you know the the tale there in the Old Testament, how he was healed in the river uh, after washing. Uh, And you remember the patient response that the people had as they heard this. They seized Jesus and they tried to take him and throw him off a cliff because they didn't like the things he was saying. Well, is that the same account there in Luke 4 that we're reading about here? Well, I, I think it probably is. Uh, although Luke places it earlier in Jesus' ministry, I think he does so purposefully to establish some of the themes that Luke focuses on. Uh, Matthew doesn't record a lot of those details, but he does record, uh, he tends to record fewer details generally. He tends to condense things that Luke tends to expand upon. And so I, I think we probably do have the same account here. If it's not, how do you account for the fact they weren't so violent toward Jesus? Well, it's possible if it was a second incident that maybe the greater renown that Jesus had a little farther along in his ministry uh, may have contributed to their uh, being less willing to be so violent with him. But at any rate, it describes for us the response of his own town to himself and to his ministry. Now, as we read this passage, I'd like to suggest that it should serve as a warning to us as we read it, that we should not just glance over it and pass on quickly or easily. 
It's a warning because the very people you might have thought most likely to believe in Jesus did not. Indeed, they rejected him. And specifically, the passage, I think, points out to us two dangers that we need to beware of and watch out for even in our own lives. Uh, Things that can hinder a genuine and saving response to Jesus. Well, what are those dangers? Well, in the first place, the passage speaks to us of the danger of holding wrong assumptions. Wrong assumptions, specifically about Jesus. When I was an assistant pastor in South Carolina, I learned very early on an important lesson from my senior pastor there. Two words. Never assume. Never assume. Now, that's important in a lot of fields, but I think it's especially important in ministry. Never assume someone knows something. Never assume someone's gotten the point. Never just assume that someone is right with the Lord when they speak well of Jesus. Uh, Can certainly apply in all kinds of ways. Well, it certainly applies here because the passage speaks to us of people who had assumptions. Unfortunately, wrong assumptions about Jesus. And those assumptions became a hindrance to their hearing him, a hindrance to their coming to faith in him. Well, what are they? What are some assumptions we might have that grow out of of this passage? Well, one assumption is, you know, if I had seen Jesus, if I had seen his miracles, I would have believed in him, or I would have believed in him much more easily, or it would confirm my faith that much more strongly if I could have just heard Jesus myself, if I could have just seen the miracles that he did. Would it? Let's look. Verse, uh, verse 54, Jesus taught them in their synagogue. They heard Jesus in the flesh. It would be as if you were there and I wasn't here, but Jesus was standing here. Actually, Jesus would have been sitting and you would have been standing. And you heard Jesus yourself. That's what they had. They were listening to Jesus himself speak and note their response. They were astonished. The wow factor was really high here. How did this man get this wisdom? And it says, these mighty works. Not that Jesus performed these mighty works right there in their presence, but just the whole package. They had heard of his Galilean ministry. They knew the things that he had been doing. We've been studying his kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We've seen the miracles that he did. The people of Nazareth certainly read about them in the headlines. They didn't quite have internet yet, but they knew. Word spread. And as they hear Jesus, they think, how did he get this kind of wisdom? How is he able to do these mighty works? Now, notice, there's no question he had the wisdom. There's no question that Jesus had done these miracles that they had heard about. They were indeed astonished, impressed, and yet they didn't believe. They rejected him. They wouldn't listen to him. See, that's the danger, is that if we just had certain things, if God would have just granted us this or that, that we would have believed, that it would have been much easier for us to to come to faith in Jesus. Now, they had these things, and yet they themselves did not believe. Well, what's another assumption? Well, another assumption is, I know all about Jesus. 
Now, among unbelievers, that's an assumption they have in their rejection of Jesus. We'll talk about that just a little bit later. You know, I, I know about Jesus and I reject him. But even among those who profess to believe in Jesus, there's sort of this assumption, I understand Jesus, I know who he is, I know about him. But did they? Note the, note the questions that they bring up. They were astonished and they said, there's this one question, just sort of in staccato fashion, one question after another as they, as they are evaluating Jesus. Notice the questions. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? What are they doing? They're processing through what they know about Jesus. And it's not so much that the facts are wrong, but their interpretation, their understanding of those facts is wrong. We know all about Jesus. How could he possibly be doing this? After all, they say, is he not the carpenter's son? Reference there to Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? We know his brothers. By the way, they list some brothers here. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Uh, James we know about. Uh, James uh, was, if you read in the book of Acts, Acts 15, apparently the presiding officer of the Jerusalem council that you read about there. Uh, by that time had become a believer and indeed a leader in the church and wrote the book of uh, James that we have in the New Testament. Uh, they mention, he mentions Simon or uh, Joseph and Simon. We really know nothing about them. Mentions Judas or Jude. We have the book of Jude in the New Testament. Became later became a believer in uh, Jesus. It mentions sisters. We don't know anything about them. But you see, the people are filtering all this through what they know or think they know about Jesus, and they say this just doesn't add up. That he's teaching like this, that he does these works, but we know his common, ordinary roots. We know his people. We know where he comes from. How can this be? And it says they, they took offense at him uh, because of who Jesus is. Now, just an aside here, kind of off the point, but worth noting while we're looking at this description of Jesus' earthly family, uh, these verses do away with a couple of errors. One, of course, that Mary remained a virgin. Uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, of course, uh, that's the Roman Catholic doctrine, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, they, they know this verse, these verses. How do they explain them? Well, maybe these were children that Joseph had by a previous marriage. Well, if that would be the case, someone other than Jesus was the firstborn and therefore the heir to the throne of David. Uh, another explanation, which is just special pleading, is that Mary, these were children of, of Mary's sister, uh, also named Mary. Just a little weird. You you kind of end up with a you know the old Bob Newhart, hi I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl situation. Would two sisters both be named Mary? It was a common name, but not that common. Um, and so you know you read this, and yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, this also does away with the error that you've heard a lot about, perhaps recently, with the popularity of certain Gnostic gospels that have arisen some of which include uh, teaching about Jesus doing miracles as a small child, you know, trivial things just to entertain and amuse his friends. Uh, the people show no awareness of that. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have responded to Jesus in this way, this astonishment over his teaching and over his, his miraculous works as an adult. 
seems to belie, put to the lie that idea that Jesus somehow was doing this as a child, or they certainly would have been aware of those things. But the point here is these false assumptions, uh, the facts are true, but their understanding is wrong, that they have about Jesus that were a hindrance to believing in him. Well, the second danger that it, we find in this passage is, uh, is somewhat similar to it, but distinct from it, and that is the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity. You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, we tend to uh, take for granted those things that are very familiar, very common to us. And Jesus was familiar to them in a sense, as we've just seen through the questions that they've been asking. Well, as we look at it, this familiarity brings up a couple of things. One, they were suspicious of Jesus. How did he get these things? You know, we know his background. We know his roots. Now, they didn't question that he did. Then they questioned the source. Where did it come from? How did this come about? Uh, they, they, they were suspicious of him because it just didn't add up. We know his dad. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. You know, they're just ordinary people. This, this, there's something weird going on here. So they were suspicious because Jesus didn't match the familiarity that they had with him. Second, they were scandalized by Jesus. Look at the look at the verse. It says in verse thirty-seven, and they took offense at him. Uh, the word is uh, the word from which our terms to be scandalized comes from, or to have a scandal. Uh, D. A. Carson in his commentary says it's sad that every time in the New Testament somebody's scandalized by someone, that someone is Jesus. You know. Um, unfortunately, our society is all too often the same way. They'll put up with just about anything but mention Jesus, and they're scandalized. Oh, that's, you know, that's offensive. How dare you bring that up? Uh, well, they were scandalized at Jesus. He, that means he was a stumbling block to them. He was a source of offense to them. They couldn't put up with him. Why? Well, Jesus explains why by quoting a proverb. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, first of all, note Jesus uses that proverb, I think, is more than just a proverb when he refers to a prophet. I don't think he's just going along with the terminology of the proverb. He's using that to refer to himself. Jesus, you know, as we talk about in the catechism, is that it fulfills the office of a prophet, priest, and king, the three major offices of the Old Testament that are now bound up and fulfilled in the one, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, But he is that prophet of which Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, The Lord himself will give you a prophet from among your own brothers, referring to Jesus, the prophet, the true spokesman for God, to which all the other prophets pointed and were, and were but shadows, uh, anticipating the arrival of Jesus. So, but he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Well, what's he referring to there? Well, he's referring to how familiar they were with him. We might also call it the expert principle. An expert is somebody who comes with a briefcase from at least over 50 miles away, right? If they lived nearby, they'd just be ordinary so-and-so. But since they've come from a long way away and they're carrying a briefcase, you assume they have some expertise, right? Well, that's kind of the idea here. Jesus was so familiar to them that the thought of him being somebody was scandalous. And they couldn't swallow it. Their attitude was basically, who does he think he is? Just a village boy from our little backwater town of Nazareth. What makes him so special? He has no business teaching people, doing miracles, the upstart. 
Now that, that's kind of the attitude. We might say it's slightly provincial, but that was how they responded to him. They were offended. And through this barrage of questions among themselves, at least in their own minds, they cut him down to size. Who does he think he is? We know his dad, we know his mom, his brothers and sisters. Who is this guy? What, what does he mean doing these kinds of things, going around teaching like this? And so he was so familiar to them that they were offended by him. Now, we read in verse 58, Jesus didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, he did do a few, apparently. Uh, it says he didn't do many because of their unbelief. Uh, we need to be careful that we're not somehow basing Jesus' capacity to do miracles on the faith of the people involved. Jesus healed people who uh, were not even present or had no faith in him, at least at the time, at all. Jesus' divine power was certainly not dependent on the strength of the faith of the recipient of that blessing. So why does it say Jesus would not do miracles because of their unbelief? Well, essentially it's saying he wasn't going to reward their unbelief with works of power. You know, it's it's kind of like when the the Jewish leaders came and said, show us a sign. Do something, Jesus. Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. It was three days in the belly of the fish and out on the third, pointing to Jesus' own resurrection. Well, Jesus was not going to reward their rejection and unbelief with miraculous works. He did not perform on command, and he didn't perform to entertain. And you think, but Jesus, you know, if only you had done more miracles there, if only you'd done more of these mighty works, maybe you would have convinced them and brought them into the kingdom. No. Jesus knew better than that. Because you see, Jesus told another parable. Uh, the, the rich man and Lazarus, in which um, the rich man in the torments of hell said, at least send someone to my brothers so that they might be warned and might believe. And you remember Jesus' response. He said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they, they have the word of God. If they will not be convinced by the word of God, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus knew that he was not going to bring these people in the kingdom by impressing them with a lot of miracles, and so he would not entertain them in the face of their unbelief with his miracles. You see, the only way that they would believe, the only way you and I can believe, is if the Holy Spirit comes and gives us a new heart. They, like we, are dead in their sins, blind and deaf, They would not, in fact, they did not believe, even though the gospel incarnate was standing in front of them. And neither will people today. If Jesus were to show up right here, today, it would not do anything more to bring someone to faith in Christ than the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit. Because it's not a a factor of impressing people, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And so I warn you, familiarity with the things of Christ can be a problem, even for you and me today. We live in some ways in a a, a culture that has been so touched by the gospel that we've become inoculated to it. I like the way J.C. Ryle puts it when he says, We are all apt to despise mercies if we are accustomed to them and have them cheap. How many Bibles do you have in your home? 
How long has one of those Bibles been open before you in this past week? How many Christian books are there gathering dust on the book table, gathering dust in the library? How many Christian books have you read in the past year? The means of grace, the preaching of the gospel weekly from the pulpit. How easily we miss a Sunday or two thinking, it'll be there when I get back. But dear friends, just as I should not presume that I will be on this earth to stand here and preach before you next Sunday, you should not assume that you will be among the living to hear the gospel from this pulpit next Sunday. How easily we take these things for granted when they are, as J.C. Ryle says, when we've become accustomed to them and we have them cheap. Do we become overly familiar with the things of God, where if not laced with contempt, at least indifference, at least taking them for granted? May God give us all a, a renewed and constant sense of wonder at the things of Christ. But I also want to warn you against the danger we spoke of earlier of false assumptions, a, a, a tremendous danger, especially in a day like ours, when biblical illiteracy is rampant, not just in the culture, but in the church. Because how easy it is to have false assumptions about Jesus if we don't understand who he is from Scripture. Now, many do reject Jesus based on false assumptions. They think they know about Jesus and what he's about, and they say, no, thank you. When, in fact, what they are rejecting is not the biblical Jesus. Now, some people do know who Jesus is from Scripture and reject him, but many think the gospel is primarily about what God wants from them rather than what God offers to them. They think that it's what God wants them to do rather than what God has done for them in Christ. And so they say, no, thank you. I want nothing to do with that. Well, funny, I don't either. Because that's not the biblical Jesus. Many people do reject Jesus based on false assumptions. But you know what? There are also many people who accept Jesus based on false assumptions about Jesus. They're well disposed toward him, wouldn't think of saying anything negative about him. There's just one problem. The Jesus they like exists only in their imaginations. It has nothing to do with the Jesus of Scripture. If you're a member of this church or of another PCA church, you've taken this vow. And I think the framers of our vows were wise when they worded the second vow in this way. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation? That's not where it ends. There's another phrase. As he is offered in the gospel. What that's saying is not that you just receive and believe some Jesus of your own devising. Jesus, as I like to think of him. But the Jesus as we find him in the gospel. The Jesus of scripture. Do you believe in the Jesus of scripture? Do you believe in the Jesus of history? Do you believe in the Jesus who is? Not a Jesus formulated by false, by wrong assumptions. You see, the real Jesus may at times offend you, frighten you, unsettle you. But he can also save you. John, back in his prologue, puts it this way. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we pray that we would not be led astray or misled by wrong assumptions, but that we would be eager to discover the truth about Jesus from the Scriptures. Father, I pray for my own heart as one whose stock and trade is to study the Scriptures, that they would not become so familiar to me that I would treat them with indifference, let alone contempt. And, Father, that we would not, but that the truths of your word, the truths we study in Sunday school, the truths that we think about here in worship, the truths we read of as we pour over your Bible, would always fill us with a sense of wonder at who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.